Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. It's Wednesday, you know what that means. You know what day it is, you know what time it is. We're in the studio. Who's this podcast for? My name is Nate. And we're back. Hope you're having a good week. Halfway through the week, through the work week, that is. Um, any other things at the top? Do I usually, do I usually have a few things to say? Don't really know if I have a few things to say this week. Uh, it has not gotten cooler yet. It's still 80-some degrees here in the beautiful Smoky Mountains. Need it down to the 70s or the 60s soon, though, because it's uh, it's fall, which is basically winter. At least that's how my calendar goes, and it's time. It's, it's time to put the boots and stuff back on, which I mention constantly. I do need a shirt that says time to put the boots on or something like that, but... um. Yeah, on this episode today, we're going to talk about the Exorcist 50th anniversary, 1973, when that kind of groundbreaking movie came out. I went to see it in theaters Sunday evening. And then after that, we're going to go to MovieWise, our favorite YouTube channel, and watch two different videos. The first one is Everything You Need to Know About Aspect Ratios. I already have that queued up, but I wanted a few minutes on the Exorcist first before we get into that. Uh, if you don't know, if you've been living under a rock, I guess, like I said, The Exorcist came out in 1973 by director William Freakin. Uh, rest in peace, he died not too long ago. Here's the description. Something almost beyond comprehension is happening to a girl on this street, in this house, and a man has been sent for as a last resort. This man is The Exorcist. 12-year-old Reagan McNeil begins to adapt an explicit new personality as strange events befall the local area of Georgetown. Her mother becomes torn between science and superstition in a desperate bid to save her daughter and ultimately turns to her last hope, Father Damien Karras, a troubled priest who is struggling with his own faith. So I have been putting this one off. You know, when those seminal movies come out like Godfather next year, probably Godfather Part Two because it came out in 1974. So it'd be the 50th anniversary. Exorcist, which came out 50 years ago this year. I like to leave those. Don't watch them and they go see them in theaters. I did that with Jaws. Godfather. The Birds is coming out later this year. I'll probably do it with that as well. Exorcist. Next year, probably Godfather Part 2. Uh, I've already seen Chinatown, but um, I think they came out in 1974. So if they're going to do a 50th anniversary of that next year, I will go see it in theaters, even though it's on TV a lot right now on Sling, and I watch it a lot. But I like to save those big ones for moments like this like i saw citizen kane in theater before i ever saw it at home i just think that's the way you know and uh, i wouldn't trade those experiences for anything in the world honestly those are the reasons why i go to a movie theater now except you know a few uh a, a few things here and there we'll, we'll have a few of those coming up soon and we'll, and we'll get more reviews going i think soon as the uh, as the months as these last few months kind of roll in but I want to talk about The Exorcist briefly. Um, I didn't know what to expect going in. Well, I did because I've watched a lot of videos on this. I have this habit. I just can't help it. I watch a lot of YouTube videos on movies that I'm interested in. I was interested in the old school Exorcist. So I kind of knew everything that was going to happen. I didn't know the all the events and I didn't know in the sequencing. But I pretty much knew what was going to happen. It didn't deter me from enjoying myself. I will say I didn't... Um, it didn't quite meet my expectations as high as they were, I guess. Even though aspects of it I really loved, I was a bit taken aback because if you know anything about the director, William Freakin, again, rest in peace to him, he's a big fan of the old stuff, right? He's an older guy, but he's a big fan of movies like Citizen Kane and 2001 A Space Odyssey and, you know, stuff like that. A lot of older movies, right? So I watched this movie thinking, okay, and it was made in the 70s. And that was the time period of a whole new kind of idea of filmmaking and how you did it. All the guys that were making it were making were making them a certain way. Even though they all had reverence for the old masters like John Ford and Howard Hawks and them. So I was thinking, okay, we freaking really love these guys. I know he's going to make this movie kind of akin to what they would have done. And then you watch it and not really. It's a lot of cutting, a lot of editing. I think the editing is the best part, even though that's one of the it's one of the problems i had is that um i didn't think that they held on the frames long enough for my liking i was talking to my brother last night 
And I asked him, what's one particular thing that you like in a movie that like, if you see it, you're automatically in. It might not be your favorite movie, but you definitely aren't going to hate it just for this one aspect alone. And I told him for mine, it's like a, a deep, um, it wouldn't be reverence, but like a deep appreciation for like framing and blocking shots. So like the camera moving only when the actors move or only when it's, uh, only when something necessitates a move, uh, a lot of foreground, middle ground, background, like deep focus shots. Um, and the actors are staged in a way that's always interesting and dynamic and, uh, and serving a purpose to the story. I'm just a big fan of framing, blocking and reframing, redistributing the actors around the scene or the set and the camera movement, movement, moving with them. Kind of like the old masters like Billy Wilder and those guys used to do. Um, and, and they didn't just utilize over the shoulder, reverse, reverse shot. I appreciate that. I think that shows a level of directing that is rare today. Where a lot of guys just don't do that. And it kind of started in the 70s. But I was thinking... William freaking wouldn't be that guy. And I didn't see a lot in the movie. I saw it maybe once or twice. It was some good framing. It wasn't long. And, um, and obviously he, he holds on the shots much longer than a contemporary director does, because that's just what it was back then. Like the further you go back, the longer the shot lengths were, where now they just think cut, cut, cut. It's more MTV music video style where everything is super quick editing and cutting. Back then, it was a little bit slower, but even faster than it was if you went from 1973 back, which is, you know, what I've been getting more and more into. So I was a bit disappointed in the directing. Um, it wasn't as much of that old classical style as I thought it would be, considering William freaking loves the old classical movies. But he was working in an, in an environment, in an area, in a time period when that's all they were kind of doing. were almost trying to reinvent the wheel so to speak, becoming much more modernized in their styles. And that's fine. It just didn't work for me that much. But I will say the editing is superior. I mean, his sequencing of shots. Well, like I remember many times throughout the movie where it'll be a scene of like, uh, what's it like, Chris McNeil talking to uh, a priest. And then it'll just be like a quick flash of, of the demon. His name is Pazuzu. And just a quick flash, and it's so eerie, and it's it catches you off guard. And it's very scary. I'll say this movie is very scary. You know, you watch a lot of older stuff, or at least people say this. You watch a lot of older stuff, it's not as scary as maybe it was to them because we've seen so much. I think this movie is horrifying. There are many sequences when she's going through whatever it is she's going through. I'm talking about Reagan McNeil with the, uh, with the demon inside of her that are very scary. Um, but I think the scariest scenes were the ones when she's getting like tested in the hospital. Like we have to figure out what's wrong with her. And they do this one thing. I don't think I'm spoiling anything. It's a 50 year old movie. They do this one thing where they like put this like glob of something on her neck, um, put a needle in her and I guess numb her down. And then like put this trach in her and pull it out. And his blood squirts out and it's sticking out of her neck. And she's a complete like pain, like, and her mother watches on, trying to figure out what's wrong with her. And they do like a they put this like head contraption on her, and it's loud and it's weird. It was ve- I will say it's about the sound design. It's very loud, sometimes too loud. I don't know if that's what William freaking wanted. I know he has remastered this movie a few times over the years uh, for, for you know quote unquote modern audiences or whatever and modern movie theaters. Uh, very loud at times, almost too loud. Not, not even almost. It was too loud. So I don't know if that's my AMC or if that was him, but yeah, I, I didn't like that at certain times. But at certain times, it was it deemed very effective where like you hear like small things in the theater. You're like, is that somebody in here? But like, no, that's part of the movie. Created a very chilling atmosphere, I must say. Um, but all the stuff in the hospital is bad. There's a scene where she like where they show the needle like going in her, like drawing blood or whatever. And I, and I hate that kind of stuff. And it, it was just tough to watch, man. It's a very scary stuff, man. Like when, when somebody like doesn't know what's wrong with you and they're trying everything, putting this girl through all of this pain. Like it was like, man, that is tough to watch, man. But I think without a doubt, the last the last like 20, 25 minutes of the movie is great. When Father Marin, and I know you've all seen the shot when he gets out of the cab and he um and, and he and he he's standing outside and you have the light 
from the light on the post on the corner and the moonlight is just shining into the window and he's just standing there. That from that moment on when when they call him in to the end is it's pretty flawless stuff. It's absolutely stirring. There's little music. It's engaging. It's it's horrifying. It's very sad too. I'm thinking of a scene when Karis has to leave the room because Reagan is using his mother as a like uh as a like emotional point to get him out of his head. And Father Marin told Karis, "We have to stay, you know, in the room. Like you you can't let her get to you emotional wise because she, it'll take you out of it." So he has to leave the room and he goes downstairs and sits while Father Mary continues with the exorcist by himself. And uh, Chris McNeil comes out and she's like, is, is, you know, is it done? Is, is she, uh, you know, is she dead or whatever or something like that? I forgot exactly what she said. And he says, uh, no, I don't think so. Or not this time or something like that. And he gets up and he goes back in because Father Karen says this whole side story about his mother who he put in a psych ward because some things were happening and her health was deteriorating, I think. And then, you know, he kind of didn't forgive himself when she died. And um, with Chris McNeil, like, if she did, he was like, um, not this time. Like, I'm not going to let this one get away. So he goes back up into the room. He faces his fears. But by this point, Reagan has already killed Father Marin. And again, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. It's, it's you know, if you haven't seen it, just skip this part, I guess. Reagan kills Father Marin. And now it's just Karis and her. And he's laughing. And she's laughing at Karis, like, look at Father Man, like, no, like, he got this guy killed because he left the room, I think. And so then him and Reagan get into it. He takes the demon out of her, throws himself out the window, how how she threw um, the director out the window earlier in the movie. And he kills himself to take the demon with him. And Reagan is ultimately okay. But Karis dies and Father Marin dies. And that's kind of the end of the movie. Uh, I love this. I, I love the last like 20 minutes. It was absolutely fantastic. I loved a lot of this movie. I just think it didn't quite reach the heights that I was um, hoping it was going to reach. And uh, you know, that happens. That happens with these movies, even older movies. Everything from the old time isn't as good as you think. But in that same coin, everything from the old time isn't as old or stodgy as one may think, especially if they're of a young age. A lot of that stuff is great. And I, in my opinion, a lot of it's better than today. But if I had to take one takeaway from The Exorcist in a great way, the editing of shot sequences where he's telling the story very visually with like, remember when Father Marin shows up where the taxi's coming, it cuts to like these this close up of Reagan's eyes and she's fully in the demon form now. And her eyes are green and it just does a slow push in on her eyes. And then it cuts back to the taxi on the way to the house. And then he gets out of the cabin, he stands, and it cuts back to her eyes. Like, they're meeting up from the beginning of the movie when when Pazuzu and Marin were first in uh, in Iraq, I think, or out there in the Middle East, to now, like, it's the showdown. And he comes in the house, and he says, hey to everybody. And then it cuts to, like, a wide of all of them by the steps. And, and the demon just says, Marin, and just screams it. Like those kind of sequencing ideas in the editing, it's absolutely flawless. I think that's the best aspect of the film, next to the performances. And I think everybody did great. Ellen Burstyn uh, was great, and uh, Max Vancito, and the guy that played Karis, I can't remember his name, but I do want to give him some respect because I think he's really good. Uh, Jason Miller, yeah. And Lee J. Cobb is in it, my guy from 12 Ring of Man. So that's always good to see him. But that's it. That's my thoughts on Exorcist. Um, if you haven't seen it, go seek it out. I'm sure it's on the streaming service somewhere. Um, and if it's coming to your town for the 50th anniversary, probably not because it already just passed, I think. But if you got to see it, you know, uh, I, I don't think you'd be disappointed. I wasn't disappointed. It was fun. Um, you know, just I had a few had a few nitpicks, but, but I think that's OK, ultimately. All right, now we got that out the way. We're gonna jump into movie wise. Our buddy on YouTube, get on over him, get on over to him and subscribe to his channel. M O V I E W I S E. This is everything you need to know about aspect ratios. 
And the description is, you know those black bars you see on movie screens? Take this 11-minute journey and you'll find out way more than you ever thought you would know about such a technical detail. Movies were born in 133 to 1. Abel Gans tried to enlarge the 4 to 1, but the fashion wasn't launched. Sound films changed things to 119 slash 120 to 1, and mostly Academy Ratio 137 to 1. Proto 70mm films at 210 didn't leave a mark. In 1953, widescreen came back with a vengeance at 166, 175, 185, 2, 220, 235, 255, 259, 276, and 289 once. Though only 235 soon turned into 239, 185, a European look at 166 became largely popular. Nowadays, you will find screen-filling 178 IMAX theater slave, 143, 190, whatever Michael Bay comes up with, and suddenly ubiquitous 2 to 1. Vittorio Storaro did what he could to make 2, Univism, two to one, happened, but it simply would not happen. Then David Fincher used it once, and boy, oh boy, did two to one happen. Does it all sound too algebraic, mixing up letters and numbers? As much as I admire your literary attention to YouTube description text, I advise you to watch the video of my wonderful friend. He is a friend indeed. I love this guy. Love his stuff. I love his idea of movies uh, because we pretty much align on most everything. Uh, so. I just think he's invaluable when it comes to the YouTube movie scene. And everybody should go find his channel and, and seek it out and tell a friend about it if you're into movies and this kind of stuff. After this, we're going to watch um, another one called The Most Brilliant Shot in Movie History by MovieWise. But we're going to start with the aspect ratio. All right, let me get past this ad here. Okay, it's not letting me. Okay, there we go. Okay. I'm at zero. Again, this is uh, everything you need to know about aspect ratios by MovieWise. And I'm going to count it down. And I'm going to start it. Five, four, three, two, one. Press play now. I'm starting it over. All an aspect ratio is, is when you divide a frame's width by its height. That determines those black bars either on the side of the screen that you see or at the top and the bottom, depending on the movie. Napoleon is going to be a movie this year. Uh, since he was speaking about Napoleon in 1927, we're going to make another version in 2023 with uh, Joaquin Phoenix starring as Napoleon and uh, Ridley Scott directing. That'll be out, I think, later this month or in November. Actually, it'll come out in November. It'll come out the day before Thanksgiving, I believe, or at least the day over the day after, right around Thanksgiving is when Napoleon is going to come out to theaters this year. Just so you know, a few early sound 
I love the lighthouse. And one of the ways that he achieved that old-timey look is that aspect ratio of 119 to 1. Very boxy, very old school. But that black and white film stock he used and those old Baltic lenses, which are, I think were back from like the 1950s, that movie oozes an authenticity and a realism of that time period in movies that were made back then. If it came out back then, it probably would have won like every Academy Award. But today, it just won like cinematography i think back in 2019 which is great it's deserving but man like that movie is so rich and full of um atmosphere and everything and that's from that's from all of, of the technical stuff that robert eggers was doing with that film like man I, I i love that movie but really for how it's shot and everything technical about it, everything I just mentioned, it's it's it makes it so it's such a wonderful watch, especially in the theater when, when we went and saw it. It's a beautiful film to see, man. But even shorter lived than one twenty to one was a brief attempt at a white suit. In nineteen thirty, a handful of films were made in two ten to one, including the first film starring John Wayne, but it never caught on, and nobody today even remembers that existed. Academy ratio 137 reigned supreme all the way to 1953 when studios decided TV was stealing their thunder. From the birth of television until the arrival of HDTV in the 90s, television screens were in the 4 by 3 ratio, which, to do your math, is 133 to 1. But isn't 133 the ratio of silent films? Narrower than 137, which was the ratio of sound films. Technically, yes, but if you can look at a 133 image then to a 137 and tell the difference, then I am sorry to tell you, but you are the world's most useless X-Men. Here's a comparison. Imagine how much more information you can fit into all that extra white right? Anyway, studios decided to invent something TV couldn't George Stevens' Shane was shot on Academy Ratio, but had its image cropped up and down to fool people into thinking it had a slightly wider 1.66 to 1 ratio. So, where's Waldo? Let me go back quickly. Shane looks so beautiful by George Stevens. Another master that they don't talk about much because of the... Uh, because of the willingness to only talk about people from the 90s and up, except like Spielberg and Scorsese. But George Stevens is a guy who's been kind of lost to time and his movies, but he's an absolute wonderful director and filmmaker. George Stevens' Shane was shot on Academy Ratio, but had its image cropped up and down to fool people into thinking it had a slightly wider 1.66 to 1 ratio. just love all the movies that they're showing in this and um this is the era of the wide screen it has not gone away it is actually even more wide today i don't see a time when it'll ever go away but i do see a time when more people will want to go back to something more of a box instead of the wide but let's see if we can name every movie in the aspect ratios he's showing again i hope you're watching along because you can see the images as well as i can so 166 is obviously 1200 men. Love that aspect ratio. Love that movie. And that's Lee J. Cobb again, who was in The Exorcist as the private investigator. And it was great to see him uh, in a modern movie because I've only seen him in stuff like On the Waterfront and 1200 Men. But see him in The Exorcist as an older man, balding, as opposed to his 1200 men or On the Waterfront. It, just, it was very interesting to see. 166 to 1, 185. I do believe this is Anatomy of a Murder, yes, because that's James Stewart and George C. Scott in the background. Had that movie on Criterion. I will watch it and give you a review of it one day. Five, two, point. Two, two to 1. This is looks like Rock Hudson 
Don't necessarily know the movie, but I do believe that's Rock Hudson. So I'm guessing that could be a, one of the melodramas of the 50s, maybe. 220, that's Lawrence of Arabia. 235, this is a musical probably by Vincent Minnelli. Could this be Singing in the Rain? Not sure, but that is Gene Kelly. 255, Bridge on the River Kwai. 276 is Ben-Hur, I believe. I think so. When the dust settled, three ratios proved to be, um, what do you say, successful? Two three five, it's Chinatown being shown, obviously. One eighty five, that's North by Northwest. And one sixty six, I do believe this is Giant. Maybe I think so. I think this is Giant. I love love that one sixty six one. Um, let me go back again. One eighty five. I think it said 235. I don't know what movie that is. That's like Walter Matthau. But you can tell a distinct difference. If you're looking at the screen right now where I have it paused, I'm at 420, by the way, where I paused it. 235, 185, and 166. You can tell a distinct difference. Um, I do believe 166 is the one in the bottom right. 235 is the one at the top because it's very slender, but longer. And then 185 is a mixture of both, whereas 166 is closest to that boxy shape. 185 is kind of a middle to them both. But you can see a distinct difference. So it does make a difference based on the picture that you're that you're trying to show in the story, really, which uh, aspect ratio does it demand. 90%. Two three five called Cinemascope. Now two three five is Cinemascope or in scope, and this shot is the apartment. And clearly, based on this shot, you can tell it's needed. He's gonna get to the point of why it's needed in a second. Um, I hope you hear this because it's 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 dire. I might pause it and talk about it. Or I might wait till the end. Uh, we'll we'll see. I'm gonna go back a little bit. got an ad but um i love that part where he talks about um you know 235 being abused now because most screens are that wide naturally so in these comp in these multiplexes so movies that don't even need scope are using it or they're not even framing and comp and comprising their shots to need it you basically using all of the frame they'll shoot a close-up in reverse 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 order over the shoulder for a conversation scene in scope. And it's like, well, if this is all the movie's going to be, and that trust me, that is all the movie's going to be. Why did you use scope in the first place? Just because that's the norm, but just because it's normal or the norm doesn't mean it's, you know, it's a good enough reason. And nine times out of 10, it isn't. Uh, but I think that it showed Nomadland. 
that's a I think that's a problem using scope with handheld because handheld you're not going to capture a, a wide frame you're not going to capture a, a wide composition or or an interesting blocking formation you're just going to capture the characters and try to make it quote unquote as realistic as possible so then why are you using scope you use something else but I think that's more of a problem with handheld than it is scope but they are abusing scope these days and like if you go watch the apartment you see why they use scope every shot is it's like a painting it's like uh every frame of painting that's what they're saying i I feel like that's what they're saying comes from pause it here and go back to the ones he said uh you know maintained i forgot which three it was 166 185 and 235 okay i just have to go make sure So I think it's interesting you're talking about the Hateful Eight, where QT used 276, which is a very wide aspect ratio. And most of the movie, if you know the Hateful Eight, which is a great film, by the way, most of the movie is indoors, so you don't capture those vistas like you really want that 276 to capture, except at the beginning. And it's absolutely stunning and breathtaking. But then the rest of the movie is indoors, and you're focusing on close-ups. So again, why are you using this big, wide aspect ratio? If only for like 10 or 15, 20 minutes of your movie, and then the rest is not even being utilized properly. It's just a question. And again, I love the hateful eight, but that is a question to ask. 259 ratio, or in the case of How the West was one, extremely wide, 289 to 1. It's hard to compose with such a large image, and few theaters could properly show such films. So it was another fad not meant to last. 
prospered in the 50s, used for colorful movies, mostly musicals, then it died. Damien Chazelle used it in La La Land, specifically to pay homage to such musicals. Normally 16 by 9. Oh, right, 178. Almost forgot about it. It's for TV shows, because it fits the screen. Most cameras have it set as default, so if you want to make a theatrical movie, use any other ratio, so you won't look like a hack who can't even change his camera settings. By the way, in the 50s, a few films used the 175 ratio. It didn't set the world on fire. Normally, 16 by 9, scope, standard, artsy party, and 4 by 3 would be the only ratios you would encounter. However, so let me go back and make sure we we detail this. So 16 by 9, which is 178, which is basically for TV. should use it in a movie. If you're going to use a movie, instead of 178, use 185. This is 239, which is scope. 185 is standard, which we talked about. 166, which is like 12 Angry Man, European. And 137 with 4x3, which is the old school. So you got 16 by 9, 239, 185, 166, 4 by 3, or going from the bottom, 4 by 3, which is 133 to 1, 166, 185, 239, then 16 by 9, which is 178 to 1. Those are basically the five he says you need to know. Only ratios you would encounter. However, with so much technology these days, today we have even more aspect ratios going around than in the 50s. What the hell is even that? I imagine it's an upgrade to 70mm Okay, here's the lightning recap. Thick bars on the sides. That's 137 to 1. Thin lines on the sides, 166. Fits the screen, that's 178, I believe. Thin lines at the top and bottom, 185. Those lines, but a little bigger, 2 to 1. Thick bars up and down. I think we think this is 239 scope. He said that's all. That's all you need to know. He said two to four, but basically 239 or two to uh, 2.4, uh, 2.40, 2 2.39 to one. That's scope. Go family, go. If you enjoyed this video, please like, subscribe, and share it. I will see you next time, and this is Movie Wise. Yep, that's it on that. Now you know a little bit more about aspect ratios. You're welcome. Let's jump into this last video of the day. 
At the top, you'll see it says cuckolds and chairs and horses and holes. The most brilliant shot in movie history. I went through the last few episodes we've done on Movie Wise, and I don't think I've done this one. I didn't hear it, and I pretty much went through it multiple times to make sure I wasn't repeating a video. So I do think this one is new to you, and um, I appreciate it, and I think you will too. Got ads. Let me get to zero. Let me read you the description, of course. Of course, we all love pretty compositions and flashy tracking shots. But if you ask me, and since you're reading this, I presume you do, what makes a truly great shot is its capacity to convey its message in the most effective way possible. That is a great shot. But what makes a brilliant shot? Let's find out by digging into the minds of great directors like Ernst Lubitsch, Billy Wilder, George Stevens, and Alfred Hitchcock. Those four names I'm already excited about this video. And again, he says, it is the mess. It's what he says. What makes a truly great shot is its capacity to convey its message in the most effective way possible. Okay, reading on. You'll finally understand the famous Lubitsch touch. You will learn why George Stevens is an underrated genius. You'll find out I am not an alcoholic. Don't let them tell you otherwise. You will blush at the sight of chairs, shiver at the sight of doors, giggle at the sight of trains. And you'll finally know what it feels like when a movie treats you like an intelligent viewer, which is what you are, you wonderful video watcher and description reader. And that's the description. We're not going to waste no time. This, again, is the most brilliant shot in movie history, according to MovieWise on YouTube. Three, two, one, now. If you look up what are the best shots in movie history, you'll find one list after another of nothing but beautiful shots. superficial. What makes a good shot? Not just a beautiful composition and impressive cinematography. It's whether that shot is the best possible way to state whatever it wants to state. If character A arrives, there is an infinite amount of ways to show character A arriving. One of them may be brilliant. I don't know, this example is too vague. Talking about vagueness, you know what awesome art when a shot shows you what you don't see. Encapsulate the spirit of melancholy. Easy. Boom. Sad desk. Boom. Sad wall. It's art. Anything is anything. How is that even possible, I hear you ask? Shots show that's why they're called shots. Actually, no, I don't know who or what gave you that idea, but to properly talk about a shot capacity to show absence, let's talk about the greatest film director of all time, Billy Wilder. I love that um, he shows Scorsese what he was saying. Talk about the greatest film director of all time, and then he shows Billy Wilder. Because I too think, it, on a short list of guys, he's the best. If you have to pick somebody. Um... You know, I think personally for 12 Angry Men alone, Sidney Lumet has to be mentioned. He might not have the catalog of some of the other guys, but he's up there. And Scorsese is one of the best of all time. I just don't think it didn't translate enough for me. I would have loved more stuff like Raging Bull. Instead, we got more stuff like Goodfellas and Unpopular Opinion. Casino is better than Goodfellas, but the style of those movies is not my favorite. How they tell that story, uh, it's not my favorite. I prefer something like Raging Bull from him, which I do think is a perfect movie and his best. But let's continue. You'll come up again in a short while. Billy Wilder had a sign on his office which said, how would Lubitsch do it? And who is Lubitsch and why didn't I live off with him, I hear you ask. Ernst Lubitsch was Wilder's idol and creator of what is now called the Lubitsch Touch. But what is the Lubitsch Touch, I hear you ask? Inquisitive today, aren't the Lubitsch touch is to cinema what the word metaphysics is to drunken midnight conversations. As in, you hear it, inquire about it, get a confounding reply and smile and nod in ignorance, pretend that you understood it. Then you Google it and remain as confused as you were in the beginning, having as little idea what it means as you have of how this long, winding sentence even started. Full stop. But lucky for you, Mr. Movie Wise is here to clarify. The Lubitsch touch, I mean. 
I still don't really get what metaphysics are all about. The Lubitsch touch is the art of implying instead of showing, both in the writing and in the directing. That is all. Anyone says otherwise is trying to sell you a book. Let's talk about Lubitsch's 1937 film Angel, which I totally watched more than once, including just now, so I could properly talk about it instead of relying on my hazy memory, like a professional YouTuber would do. Our male lead meets our female lead, never mind their names, I know I don't. He takes her out for a fancy dinner like the dapper gently is, and they are serenaded by this obnoxiously invasive violinist. I hope you're seeing the screen. The theme he just improvised becomes their music. How sweet. It later turns out our female lead is married. She's married to female lead's husband. She plays him the violin tune on the piano and tells him she just made it up. There were no copyright strikes in them days. Female lead's cuckold husband later suspects she cheated on him and he calls our male lead. The butler leaves the phone as he goes call Mayo Lead, who, very inconveniently for all involved, is playing that same tune on the piano. Lubitsch simply lingers the camera on the phone, because he knows we are like the cuckold. That is, smart enough to connect the dots and conclude he now knows his wife has two times. And all that with a simple close-up of a phone handset. So what we have to this point, if you're watching, you have a perfect example of the Lubitsch touch, which Billy Wilder uh, appreciated the way he had a sign of it in his office because he liked Lubitsch, Ernst Lubitsch's movies that much. And that was like his mentor. The Lubitsch touch is simply implying through the writing and the direction, implying what you want to say instead of saying it outright. So in this scene, if you weren't listening or if you weren't able to watch it, a guy and a woman meet and have dinner and a violinist at the restaurant plays a song for them and it becomes their song. The woman has a husband who starts to suspect that he's, that she's cheating. So he, he calls the guy, I guess her friend, uh, after she plays him the song from the restaurant on the piano. And once the butler puts the phone down to go and get the guy that the husband has called to talk to him about, you know, his wife, he hears that song in the background, but instead of saying anything, they just, and they don't cut, they just move the camera over to the phone and zoom in on the phone because he's hearing the noise or hearing the music. So he's like, that's the same song. That's who she's cheating with. But you're implying you two plus two equals what? You let the audience and the character put it together for themselves. That's how you respect the audience. That's the Lubitsch touch implying in the writing and the direction what's happening instead of outwardly saying it so since we have that set up let's move on to other examples of the most brilliant shots in movie history because movie why said this is brilliant but not the most brilliant shot so let's continue not the most brilliant shot in film history we're just exemplifying the Lubitsch touch to get there another amazingly brilliant shot is in the epic western giant by criminally underrated genius George it's called Giant because it's about Texas, which is big. So good thing it's not set in Rhode Island, I guess. Mercedes McCambridge rides a horse, but gets a little too spur-heavy. I guess it was the spur of the... Sorry, I gotta go back real quick. Mercedes McCambridge, Giant because it's about... Okay, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, James Dean... Only one of three James Dean movies before he passed away in a tragic accident. Uh, Giant by George Stevens. East of Eden by Elliot Kazan. And uh, Rebel Without a Cause by Ray Stevens. Or Nicholas Ray, rather. <laughs> Nicholas Ray. Um, yeah, so Giant I definitely want to see. Texas, which is big. So good thing it's not set in Rhode Island, I guess. Mercedes McCambridge rides a horse, but gets a little too spur-heavy. I guess it was the spur 
would see the horse eating this brilliant shot. I call it brilliant because you can tell exactly what happened by just moving. Notice how all the weight is concentrated on the left of the frame. The dark looming house accentuates how empty is the light right of the frame. It gives the impression that something is missing. The horse is settled, so even someone who hasn't seen anything that came before in the film can conclude that the missing thing is the rider. If a rider is missing, an accident must have happened. Therefore, this shot from George Stevens' Giant is the second most brilliant shot in movie history. No, this is not the most brilliant shot I'm here to talk about. It just looks better as a thumbnail than a door in black and white. Spoiler alert for the video you're watching. Good at Remember, George Stevens' Giant is the second most brilliant. Hasn't seen anything that he Notice how all the weight is concentrated on the left of the frame. The dark looming house accentuates how empty is the light right of the frame. It gives the impression that something is missing. The horse is settled, so even someone who hasn't seen anything that came before in the film can conclude that the missing thing is the rider. If a rider is missing, an accident must have happened. Therefore, this shot from George Stevens' Giant is the second most brilliant shot in movie history. Okay, I have to go back and listen to that. Uh, skipping forward to the Sunset Boulevard section. Billy Wilder's absolute Well, actually, a little bit before. Wilder, the greatest director, just looks better as a thumbnail than a door in black and white. Spoiler alert for the video you're watching. Remember Billy Wilder, the greatest director of all time? Of course you do, you old-serving, attractive content enjoyer. Billy Wilder's absolute masterpiece, Sunset Boulevard, is the film with the most brilliant shot in movie history. It follows Joe, a down-and-out screenwriter who can't sell a script. He is considering giving up and becoming a YouTuber. I mean, going back to his town to work in an office. I mixed him up with um, a, a friend of mine. Then he meets Norma Desmond, a forgotten aging movie star from the silent era. And she is only 50. Times used to be tough. Norma Desmond is a delusional and insane narcissist who considers herself the greatest star of all time. I am. She hires Joe to write a screenplay to be her comeback. I didn't know you were planning a comeback. I hate that word. It's return. What's the difference? Isn't a comeback a return? Let me check a thesaurus. Yes, it is. What a petty semantic complaint. She must be a humanities major. Oh, you born. I mean, what sign of the zodiac? Yep, she's a humanities major. You can add that to her list of deviances. I like secretaries, you can trust them. Thank you. Joe moves to her house and inquires Norma's butler and ex-husband. It's a queer dynamic. Why there are no doorknobs in the house? The doctor suggested it. Madame. Madame's doctor. Madame has moments of melancholy. There have been some attempts at suicide. Keep that in mind. Later, in Norma Desmond's New Year party, Joe finds out that there are no other guests. When did the butler say? Let me go back. Keep that in mind. Later, in Norma Desmond's New Year party, Joe finds out that there are no other guests than this woman who made him move to her house and bought him a new wardrobe and gifts wants to get in his pants. Not a very observant writer, are you, Joe? He says he is not really 
did you notice that? Tell me right now what will happen next. You know you got it. The door closes and the camera approaches just slightly the doorknob. Wait, there are no doorknobs because they had them removed so she wouldn't kill herself. Oh my god, she'll kill herself. <laughs> shows an empty boat an empty table there's the absence I've been talking about they didn't go canoe a picnic Then it shows the door closing. So now a little bit of a history lesson on the production code in Hollywood. Since so the golden age of Hollywood ran from roughly by 1927 with the introduction of sound to about 1967 when the uh, Hayes Code and the production code uh, and things of that nature kind of ended that about 40 year period from 27 to 67 it's considered by most the golden age of Hollywood Shots I showed you are implied. A do 
suicide. They are all cases of creative directors circumventing the production code and having your filthy mind fill in the blanks. Speaking of your filthy mind, remember the case of creative directors circumventing the production code and having your filthy mind fill in the blanks. Speaking of your filthy mind, remember the ending of Alfred Hitchcock's North by Northwest, the movie that influenced every James Bond film? A train going into a uh, a train going into a uh, a tunnel at the end of North by Northwest. If you're not watching the video, which is uh, the most implication you can get for what precedes it, about ten seconds, basically telling you what's about to happen without telling you what's about to happen. That's the Lubitsch touch. That's implication. That's writing at its finest when you couldn't just show everything but you still wanted to show something that's how you used to do it but i take the position that they're playing quite cheesy thank you for watching and if you enjoyed this video please like subscribe and share it and what do you think is the most brilliant shot in movie history leave a comment I will see you next time, and this is Movie Wise. Yep. Thank you, Movie Wise. We appreciate it as always. Again, go to go over there and follow him on YouTube. Uh, you know, when you get a chance, I, I, I think it's valuable. And he's dropping every week or every other week, so he's very active. Uh, I don't think you'll regret it. But that's it. That's the Lubis Touch. And I wrote it down from this video on my notes, like I do a lot of things, to have for my own writing. The Lubis Touch, the art of implying instead of showing both in the writing and in, and in the directing. That's all. That's what that's it. Um, real quick before we go and talk about the Canelo Alvarez, uh, Jamel Charlo fight that happened Saturday night. I was halfway rooting for Charlo just because nobody gave him a chance. And obviously why which was Canelo, he's um he's a fantastic fighter. But it seemed like Charlo maybe was told to keep moving, right? Keep your distance, keep moving, you have a longer reach. And utilize that to your advantage. But his punch output went down drastically from what he normally does. He didn't throw his hands at all, maybe out of fear. But he tagged him a few times and I think Canelo realized all oh, those guys, you know, he moved up in weight, maybe not as strong. I can take these hits. So he just kept coming in and he tagged him, kept tagging him, dropped him once. He didn't drop, but he took a knee. Uh, and Charlo just running and his coach was telling him, like, you got to throw your hands, man. And he never really did. And it was unfortunate, but Canelo won pretty easily. Uh, Charlo said he's going to move back down. Maybe 168, I think they read. It's just too much for him. Um, I think or they were 160, 168 or 160, I think. Um, maybe it was or 157. I don't know. Maybe it was too much. But he said he wants to move back down. Then he called out Terrence Crawford, who immediately said that he didn't want to fight him because he was ashamed at this fight. How Charlo kind of punked out. It was a whole spectacle. Uh, really interesting fight. Sad to see how Charlo went out, but he has real guts to even go against Canelo in the first place. Kudos to him. Now, what we're looking forward to and what I've been watching, highlights of all morning is David Benavidez, especially his last fight against Caleb Plant, who Canelo beat already. We need the Canelo Plant, I mean, the Canelo Alvarez-David Benavidez fight for super middleweight. Uh, and I think I like Benavidez in that because he reminds me of Dimitri Bivol in the light heavyweight division. And Canelo fought Bivol and got worked. I think David Benavidez will do some of the same. Uh, big kid. Great combinations, very fast hands, very strong puncher. 
I think Canelo will have a lot of problems, and I think Benavidez could get could get him, and that would be a big win for him, his biggest signature win that he could probably get. I mean, already be Caleb Plant, that's a good win. You know, he he have other people he could fight like a uh, Demetrius Andre or uh, guys like that, or move up to like heavyweight, which I think he wants to do to fight Bivol. Uh, but the guy nobody really wants to see is Artur Bitterbiv. Um, in the light heavyweight division or middleweight, that guy's a monster. But him and Dimitri Bivol will be a great fight. But uh, he, he's a boogeyman. But so is Benavidez. But Canelo and Benavidez needs to happen. And Benavidez has wanted that fight for a while. I can't wait for that to happen. We're getting some good fights this year. The Crawford Earl Spence fight that I didn't touch on. The Tank Ryan Garcia fight I forgot to touch on. The Canelo Charlo fight was pretty big going in, even though most people would think Alvarez was going to win that one easily. Um, and I think Benavidez and Plant was earlier this year, which I didn't touch on. I'm going to try to get more into boxing because if you know me, you know boxing is probably my favorite sport because the NFL is slowly starting to change into something that um, I haven't been liking as much in the NBA. I've had a love-hate relationship, love-hate relationship with them for a while anyway. It's turning more into hate, but uh, – I'm definitely going to check out the season that Damian Lillard is going to be on the books. That's kind of exciting, I guess, but I'm not a believer in Damian Lillard, so we'll see if it works. He's playing with Giannis. They could win it all, or they could flame out in the second round. We'll see. But boxing is heating up. Uh, I think Usyk, Usyk and uh, Tyson Fury are going to fight for the heavyweight title. That's a big fight. Uh, got some good stuff coming, man. And Errol Spence... I think once this rematch with Terrence Crawford, even though after that fight, I don't know if anybody wants to see that, but if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. So, you know, he has to redeem himself as well. But anyway, I've rambled long enough. Hope you enjoyed your, hope you're enjoying your Wednesday if you're at work or whatever. Uh, Weekends almost here. And like I say, always do something for you that's productive and can push your life forward in a different way other than just going to work every day. Try to find that hobby or passion and turn that into a, uh, a a commerce for you. And then it can become your job. And then you can love what you do every day. If you don't already. It's only for the people that don't already. And that's not just for you. That's for me, too. This is advice for me as well. But thank you for listening. I appreciate it as always. And, um, yeah, that's all I got. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Peace out.